Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. After his breakout hit, Beneath the Scarlet Sky, Mark Sullivan delivers another stunning tour de force. Based on the interviews and careful research, The Last Green Valley is an incredible story of courage of the human spirit. As one family's inspirational tale of triumph against impossible odds, Mark joins us today. Welcome, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. So let's jump in. Would you tell us about what is The Last Green Valley all about? So it's about a young family of refugees in this horse-drawn covered wagon trying to outrun the Soviet Red Army while under the protection of the Nazi SS. I'd never heard any story like this before out of World War II. And it came as I began to learn that some 60 million people were displaced by the war. And um, I had no idea how to fathom that, but they were all made refugees. People were being pushed in all sorts of different directions. And I became fascinated with the idea of telling a story that was about people trying to get out of the way, facing with all sorts of bad choices, right? No good ones, bad. And I learned uh, about the Martells in November of 2017, about five months after Beneath the Scarlet Sky. And I was, at that point, a lot of people were saying that I probably would never find a story like Beneath the Scarlet Sky. And I was like, you know, I don't know. I think I am going to. And sure enough, I started getting all these letters and emails from people about various stories they knew about, not just World War II, but just interesting stories about people. And a lot of them were fascinating, but I mean, I realized I had to come up with a criteria, right? What was I looking for? And I really thought about Beneath the Scarlet Sky, and it was because the uh, story was inherently moving, healing in some ways, inspiring in a lot of ways, and transformative in ways uh, to the reader and to me, you know? So I wrote down those four words. That's what I was looking for. And in November, I go and do a... uh, talk at the Noontime Rotary in Bozeman, Montana, and a retired dentist comes up to me and says, do you know these people, the Martells? And I said, you mean like the construction people? And they said, yeah. And he said, the entire time I was reading Beneath the Scarlet Sky, all I could think about was their story of how they came to America and how they had to run from the Soviets under the protection of the Germans and what happened. So a couple of days later, I'm standing in Bill Martell's driveway. I've never been there before, but I've got this bizarre feeling. And I finally realized it's because I can't be 250 yards from where I heard the story of Pinoello, which became Beneath the Starless Sky. So I go in and Bill starts telling me the story of his parents, Adeline and Emil. And within an hour, I know. I mean, it's hitting every single one of my criteria. And within an hour, I tell him I want to write the story, uh, which is pretty amazing because my instincts were dead on. I, I never, I didn't understand that there were people who were ethnic Germans who lived in the Ukraine. They had been given land and um, 30 years tax-free if they would move from Germany to the Ukraine. This is in the late um, 18th century, so 1790s, Catherine the Great realized that the serfs of Ukraine couldn't sustain big harvests enough to make sure that Russia didn't starve. So she made this move because the Germans at the time were the best, you know, wheat growers in certainly in Europe. And um, they go and the Martel family goes and 
they spend more than a century living there. Uh, you know, both Adeline's parents and uh, Emile's parents and going way back with their ancestors. So life is very good. They live in these isolated colonies and then the Bolshevik revolution happens, right? And in very short order, they're persecuted. Um, Adeline's father gets sent to the Gulag in Siberia and is never heard from again. Emil's father is sent to the mines in Siberia and returns a broken man. And they, they're starved by Stalin. Everybody was in the Ukraine at that time in the early 30s. And it goes on and on until Adolf Hitler uh, invades in July of, uh, sorry, June of 1941. And when he invades, one of the first things he does is he asks these ethnic Germans, do you want your lands back? And they say, well, of course we want our lands back, you know? And for about two years, they have, you know, a normal, what they would call a normal life. They eat, their kids are not malnourished. They're they're able to do what they know how to do, which is to farm. And then Stalingrad happens. And then the Battle of the Dnieper River. And so the Soviet forces are coming. And right around when they're about, you know, four days out, uh, an SS guy comes to the little village of Friedenstahl and says, do you want to stay and wait for the bear or do you want to run with us? And of course, they're thinking that these guys are wolves because they've been living in the German occupation for two years and they know what these SS guys are capable of and what they've done. But it's again, it's one of these interesting questions. What do you do? Do you think you're going to wait for somebody who sent your, both your fathers to Siberia, you know, and you've been benefiting from the German occupation? So they decide to go with the Germans. And when they do, they have the understanding between them, between Emil and Adeline, that when they get the chance, they're going to run for the Allied lines and become someone else's refugees. Uh, and so that's the plan. And they they take off in this rather extraordinary scene. So you got to imagine that there are all these retreating, the German army is retreating. There's a, a caravan of like 100,000 people uh, in these covered wagons, you know, various tentacles of it, all of them moving east, I'm sorry, west, and they're going away from the army. So that for a long time there, the, the Martels and other ethnic Germans are kind of caught between the two armies, which is just extraordinary. They end up in tank battles, they're, they're in bombardments, they're in shootouts, they're hiding in culverts, and they manage to survive the whole thing. While, as the book goes on, they're reckoning with their own actions or inactions at the beginning of the Holocaust. Turns out that the final solution really started to be implemented in 1941, shortly after the invasion, like right on the heels of the German invasion of Russia. They sent in these guys, the Einsatzgruppen, and they were firing squads, mostly of SS and true believers. And they began this holocaust of bullets in Ukraine as they, they swept the Ukraine and started to move north. Um, and I knew I knew this about the story, uh, and I knew that the Martels, obviously, because everybody had to have had interactions with the Germans. I discovered that one of the granddaughters of the Martels said that her grandmother told her that one time when they shortly after they moved back to this farm in Friedensthal, Emil had to go and buy roofing supplies to uh, finish the house that they were going to live in. And he was supposed to be gone like a day and a half. And he came back after four days as, as shaken and rattled as she'd ever seen him. 
And she asked what had happened. And he said he was held by the Nazis and he was forced to bury Jews. And he never wanted to talk about it again. So I had to face this, right? Because um, I learned that a lot, there were some ethnic Germans who actually participated in the Holocaust. There's absolutely zero evidence, you know, and I researched exhaustively that says the Martels were involved in any way other than maybe what Mr. Martel said. And, but I, I didn't want to ignore it. I wanted to face it. And um, about the same time, I started learning this fascinating thing that about two weeks before the invasion of Russia, so 1941, this would have been in late May 41, Heinrich Himmler witnesses a firing squad shooting of uh, 10 or 15 political prisoners. And he's so upset that he vomits and he, he, he makes this declaration that I'm gonna hold back because it's sort of pivotal to how the story works. Um, and the declaration is, uh, you know, ends up changing, slightly shadowing the entire beginning of the Holocaust. And subsequently how people tried to defend themselves after the Holocaust for their actions. Uh, so anyway, that's how this story works. And, but for the most part, it follows Martels as they go on this long trek across uh, Ukraine, Moldova, Romania, into Hungary, where they lose their covered wagon and they're taken by train north to Lodz, Poland, which you know, I never knew was the uh, Ellis Island of the Third Reich. There's so much that's going on that, that, you know, like being brought up and taught about World War II and the, like most of those historical events I was all aware of. And then the, but then just like kind of learning about the personal touch and how it affects people. It's so easy just to kind of forget about during those events, how, how monumentously difficult that must have been for, for those people. Oh, oh I, you know, I was consistently stunned as I learned more about it. There hadn't been a lot written about it, but there was some. I found uh, things in the uh, German ar archives, national archives, about how the thing was arranged, put together. Um, I was able to go to several museums along the route where there were actual displays that showed, you know, the big caravan coming by and um, describing what, where they went and how they went. Um, and at every turn, you, I just kept having to wrap my head around the idea, these guys aren't in trucks, they're not in planes, they're in a covered wagon. And the wagon has sort of like tin wheels, you know, tin nailed on uh, wooden wheels. And they're, they're going like close to a thousand miles on this trek, you know, before they lose their uh, wagon. And I was consistently trying to understand the absolute daunting aspect of the journey itself. So I was trying to portray that and what it would do to the people who were involved in it. Absolutely. I think that's one of the fascinating things about the World War II books. Um, I've been finding that there's so many stories that still haven't been written. Even yeah. though there's so many books out there, we're still learning so many new things. So could you talk to us more about the research and how did you go about? So you said you traveled and visited museums. Sure. Sure, I was um, blessed that there were at least recordings of Emil and Adeline that the family had. And they were asking them about, you know, the long trek, uh, how it happened, what their life was like in um, Ukraine prior even to uh, the takeover of the, uh, the Bolshevik revolution. Um, they remembered being children and, you know, sort of living this idyllic life in the middle of these colonies out in very rural Ukraine. 
Um, so I, and they were, they described the trip, they described where they went, they described how Emil was eventually taken by the Soviets and sent to the prison camp. It described uh, where Adeline and the boys ended up, you know, walking all the way through post-war Germany into Berlin and eventually finding some kind of shelter in Soviet-occupied Germany. Um, so I had a really, you know, a formidable map that I was able to, you know, form. I mean, it's, it's behind me on the wall that I would use to control it. And then I went. Um, I went in pieces. So the first big trip I went, I went from the border with Moldova. At the time, there was a little bit of conflict going on in Moldova, and the State Department was State Department was telling me not to go in there, so I didn't. Um, so I went from that border uh, all the way across Romania uh, into Hungary, Hungary up through Czechoslovakia, former Czechoslovakia into Poland, right? And then I made a second trip with um, the brothers, uh, Bill and Walter, uh, and we went to Ukraine and we tracked down the, we actually went uh, seven hours up this horrendous road and found the uh, ruins of the farmhouse where the whole book starts. And that was really emotional. I mean, for these two guys, they were both right around 80, you know, plus or minus a year. And um, you could just see in their eyes that they were reliving the entire arc of their life, that they ran from this spot, you know, nearly 70 years before, uh, maybe, am I doing the math right? Yes, like something like that. And, um, and for them to see how far they come in life, I mean, not just on this journey, but life, right? Mm -hmm. They start out in abject poverty, uh, living in, you know, a house that's made out of mud bricks and, you know, what have you. And um, they end up, you know, in Montana in this extraordinary place. So that was hugely emotional for all of us. And then we knew that we wanted to go to Poltava, which was where the Soviet prison camp was that Emil gets thrown in. And it's over near the Eastern border with Belarus, and the road was supposed to be even worse than the one we came up. So uh, I rent, I, I chartered a plane, you know, to save these guys this trip. And we flew there, and we get there, and we go, and and Emil was kept in the basement of this bombed out uh, museum. So we find the museum, and it's closed, right? And we're like, oh god. And we go around, and we're looking around, and we find the museum director. He goes, oh, we close on Monday, we're having this series of renovations done and yada, yada. Like we just start talking to him, why are you here? And he was very suspicious of us. I, you know, he didn't know why we were there. And finally, you know, I described how Mr. Martel was a prisoner here in the camp. He goes, oh, I know all about the camp. Yes, they were kept here in the thing. And then one of the brothers, Bill, I think, mentioned that um, Emil used to gather scrap wood from the hospital rebuild site where he was you know, part of forced labor. And he used to sell it to the cooks. And the guy got this big smile on his face because my mother was one of the cooks. And so now we're in. And he takes us into the museum and there were all these pictures of actual prisoners repairing the museum. Um, but then we end up in the basement, which was where Emil was held. I don't think I've had a feeling like that in life, just to see these two guys saying, you know, our father came into this room, you know, 600 men were in here, a total of 2,300 men in the prison camp, and they're dying, 
like every night there are people dying from disease and cholera and, and it's just unsanitary and and for the brothers to be in that place where their father had miraculously survived you know what is legitimate to call a hellhole and then he escapes you know and to see them confront that the reality of he was here right uh was another one of those moments that really gave me a deep sense of what the emotional impact of this journey had on not only them, but on their parents. And that's how I tried to write it. So that you go on the shoulders of Emil and Adeline Martel on this extraordinary journey. And you have access to the arc of their emotional journey, not just the physical one, but what they go through emotionally. And um, I think that's what brings it alive honest. And there's some uh, pretty effective emotional photos on your website too that I that I was looking at and I thought yeah I, I could feel the weight of history and family history through them. Yeah. yeah so when you see some of one of those you know actual wagons for the first time you go okay. Yeah. This oh, is one of those against the tank I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. So you've written two historical best-selling novels. Are they more difficult to write than your thrillers? Do you have a preference? Is, is one easier to do? Uh, I wouldn't say easier. They're very different. Um, I would definitely say historical novels are, are more difficult. There's to, for me anyway, it takes me more time to write one because uh, I have to get everything straight in my head, not only on timelines, but just to understand what these people were going through both in Benicio Scarlet Sky and in The Last Green Valley. I tried to under, get so I really understood what they had to have been enduring and, and overcoming at, at just about every step of the way. Um, I love writing mystery and suspense novels. It's, uh, I, I love every single one of the ones I've written. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's also interesting. It can be tremendously challenging um, to write one that's original. Uh, and I am grateful that all the skills that I learned from, you know, storytelling and narrative skills from suspense and mystery writing, uh, it really has benefited me when I write historical novels. I know how to keep the tension and the pace up, which I think is critical. The last thing I want is people you know, <laughs> giving them a bunch of, you know, historical facts that do nothing to drive the story forward. Yeah, you need to find that good balance. I've, I've read my fair share of... Uh mystery novels that have put me to sleep. There you go. Me too. Yeah, and I have to say your novel does read like a thriller. Like you're you're like what's gonna happen next? Um you do get that sense from from the um the last green valley. Yes. Well I mean part of it is the story itself is thrilling. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, you know it's it's you know again you just got to imagine this caravan caught between the two armies and you know, they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, they're grinding this out, trying to survive. And um, so that aspect of it was not difficult to conjure up because it was very real. But at the same time, you know, I didn't want to get bogged down in wagons breaking and rebuilding them and all that kind of stuff. I, I just didn't see the point of it. I was trying to, again, uh, manage not only the adventure of the story, Right. We don't know what's going to happen in the story with this emotional journey that these people are taking and their and this dream that they have, right? This is the thing we haven't talked about is 
one of the things that really drives them, especially Adeline, is she has this vision of this beautiful green valley she's going to live in someday. And, um, you know, that was fascinating to me, that there was this dream that she kept alive in her heart and that Emil at first wasn't, you know, in on it. And uh, it was fascinating to me that once I understood that Emil, he goes through his big metamorphosis when he goes to the prison. And I got that from the brothers for sure, that he was one man going in and another man coming out. And so I had to constantly be aware that Emil's time is coming. And really a lot of the journey part um, goes through Adeline in the early part of the book. You know that Emil's had this horrible thing that happened in the early days of the German occupation, but you don't know what it is until much later. So of all the um, Martel's harrowing situations that they had to face, was there one that you found particularly difficult to write? Oh, yeah. Well, certainly what happens to Reese on the train. Uh, when she goes under the train wheels, that was just brutal. But it happened, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, So I had to write about it in a way that wasn't so gruesome that people would be turned off. Um, but I had to you know, I had to describe it correctly. And I had to have a depiction of her high spiritedness because that's how she was described prior to the, you know, the double amputation. But yeah, that was, that was brutal. And, you know, the fact that Houseman appears out of nowhere and is trying to save her, just throws his character, Major Houseman, those of you, he's the closest that comes to a real antagonist. I, I often think of the entire ordeal as the antagonist. Mm -hmm. with Houseman being certainly part of it at the, in the first good half, three quarters of the book. But yeah, that scene was probably the worst. So what's next? Are you working on another historical or are you going to switch back to a thriller? No, I, uh, again, I'm, I'm looking for stories that inherently have this moving, healing, inspiring and transformative aspect to them. So I, I was open to any stories, whether it was historical or not. And I was approached about a story um, by the former commander of SEAL Team 6, who came and told me the story about this young boy and this young girl, 13-year-old uh, and 11, and they get kidnapped in northern Uganda. And they get dragged away from their families by this messianic warlord who turns them into child soldiers. And they're held for like close to 10 years and they're, and they're in combat, like constant. They're some of the most uh, veteran combatants on earth at one point. They uh, meet about halfway through the experience and they fall in love. And that is what carries them through and allows them to escape and then become part of this group of people in Uganda who were including the SEAL team commander and members of the CIA who were trying to end child soldiering on behalf of President Obama. So that's the story I'm telling. I'm going to Uganda in three weeks, and they're both alive. Well, then it's certainly inspirational. That sounds powerful. Yeah, I definitely look forward to reading that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I know a lot of the story already, but to be able to go with them and to walk through the bush and places where they lived and were forced to live. It's going to be eye-opening. 
So being librarians, this is uh, one of our favorite questions to ask our authors. Uh, what are you currently reading or what should we be reading? Um, I always tell people the book that I've liked the most in the last 10 years, and that's got to be Shantaram. Story, it takes place, it's the story of a guy who, um, he escapes uh, New Zealand because he's wanted for in a big robbery. And he ends up in Mumbai and ends up in the slums and becomes part of the Indian mafia. And I, it's one of the greatest things I've ever read. It's extraordinary. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, the Indian mafia is pretty crazy. So it's kind of yeah. Oh, if you haven't read it, it's one of these stories. It's, it's like yo thick, but mm -hmm. I mean, you can tell you're reading someone who's writing with authenticity. Right. He's been there. He knows exactly how this works. And he's a heck of a writer, too. It's remarkable. He wrote most of it when he was in prison. Wow. They add it to my, uh, to my nightstand. Please. As we wrap up, what do you hope readers take away from your story? You know, I hope they take away a couple things. One, we're living through a pandemic. The whole world is going through an ordeal. And I think people need to be reminded of just how much a human being is capable of, what they can overcome and endure if they just rely on a dream and that, you know, the size of their heart and their resilience and willingness to keep going. And I also think it shows you that they should cherish their freedom. What the Martels do to get the freedom is simply extraordinary. And we just take it for granted. And I don't think we should. I think we should cherish it and love it because there are people who are fighting like hell to be part of this country. And, you know, when they get here, they often do extraordinary things. Can't, we can't lose sight of that. Absolutely. We are extremely lucky. We are. Indeed. It takes all kinds of voices. Our guest today was Mark Sullivan. His book, The Last Green Valley, is available at your Kirkwood Public Library or wherever inspirational books are sold. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. It's Ryan jumping in to give us a break from the pulse-pounding KPL podcast excitement. And I'd like to talk a little bit about summer reading. Tales and Tales is this year's theme, and it kicked off on May 15th. It will run to August 8th. Uh, you'll want to visit the website at kirkwoodpubliclibrary.org and click on the summer reading link to sign yourself up your family up, to log your pages, and to complete challenges to win fabulous prizes. In fact, you may not know it, but you've just completed a challenge. You've completed the podcast fan challenge, and your secret code word is BARK. So drop BARK into the podcast fan challenge section to win yourself an extra raffle ticket. That's our show this week. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our special guest, Mark Sullivan. Make sure you check out Mark's latest title, The Last Green Valley. Please join us next week when our guest will be Colleen Oakley and her book, The Invisible Husband of Frick Island. We leave now on the words of American science fiction author Robert Heinlein on the importance of remembering the past. A generation which ignores history has no past and no future. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week.